is the Down East EM Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Down East EM Podcast. And thank you for joining us for our talk on herpes. So what you're about to hear is a lecture given at our residence conference, our asynchronous conference in the times of COVID, talking about herpes. You know, it's such beautiful bread and butter emergency medicine that we thought we had to include it. It also answers so many of the questions that patients are going to ask us when we're giving them that diagnosis that it's just chock full of take-homes. I learned a ton from it, and I think you will too. So here's a lecture by one of our attendings, Dr. Janessa Ledger, on herpes. Enjoy. The theme of my talk is I have something down there. So as you can imagine, this is going to be a talk about vaginal lesions since it's OBGYN month. With that said, let's jump into the first case. So this is a 25-year-old female who says it hurts when I pee. Initially, she says, yeah, it hurts when I pee, but also I've had these symptoms over the past week of not feeling well. I've had a low-grade fever, just generally feeling tired, headache. Oh, and by the way, about three days ago, I noticed some spots down there. Has this ever happened before? Never. Is the patient sexually active? Oh, you're so good, yes. Like the great resident you are, you ask a great sexual history. Yes, I'm sexually active. Not consistently using condoms. Um, did you say, has she ever had these spots before? Never. Never had them before. It's favorite. What kind of exam would you like to do? I think just to start an external like genitalia exam and see yeah. what these pelvic. lesions look like. So you do a pelvic exam and this is what you see. Or you might see this any of these well these ones are look a little bit strange but those initial ones look very much like herpes yeah correct you're right it's herpes um, these are a little bit atypical but you might see um, the pictures on the right side are a picture of a cervix the top right is cervical necrosis so you can sometimes see with herpes and the bottom right are actually like lesions that you might see on the cervix with herpes also. The bottom left is an atypical presentation and all it is is a small, you can't really tell what you're looking at there, but it's at the vaginal introitus um, and it's a small fissure. That's actually herpes. It's just an atypical presentation of it. And then the top left are more of those ulcerated lesions. So yeah, this is herpes. So we're going to talk briefly about what you're going to do to confirm the diagnosis, a little bit about epidemiology, how it's transmitted, because that's important for, from a public health standpoint and uh, in counseling the patient. And then the expected course, because patients are going to have a lot of questions about that. And then briefly about treatment, mostly of primary infection, because that's mostly what we're going to see in the ED, because um, these patients have never had it before. And then once they get diagnosed, a lot of times they know what um, what it's like, and so they you, you, you're going to be kind of punting at that point to the primary care provider. And then briefly about some rare complications that you should know about, and then a couple special cases including pregnancy and HIV. So this is the first case and the longer case, so we'll go through this stuff, and then if we have time at the end, I have a few more interesting cases of other painful vaginal lesions that you might see in the ED. So what do you, do you know what um, you would use, what 
test you would do to, to confirm the diagnosis. Most of it is clinical. If you see it, you think that's what it is, but some of them like might pre present atypically like the bottom left picture with the, just the small fissure. Um, and so do you know what you would do to help confirm the diagnosis? Well, the most specific would be to unroof it and uh, send a viral PCR, I believe, or viral culture. Yeah. Good, exactly. And you hit it right on the head because um, a lot of people don't realize you have to unroof the vesicle unless it's already unroofed, like the, the second picture I showed you. Um, but if it looks like that first picture, you might have to unroof the vesicle and then swab the base of, of it. Um, and it's a PCR test. It's the same swab that you use for influenza, COVID, um, and like it's a viral culture or a viral tube that you um, just swab and send for PCR. Because it tells you if it's HSV1 or HSV2, which has implications of their course of illness. Okay, so the first thing that the patient's probably going to say to you is, what? And the short answer is direct contact, either oral to genital or genital to genital contact. And this is on a molecular level what it looks like. The virus basically attaches to the skin cells, gets um, into the cells, and then travels up the nerve to the nerve root ganglion where it hangs out and then periodically can get reactivated in times of stress or trauma or a number of other things, and then can travel down the nerve back to the area um, and cause localized inflammation and ulcerations. And um, both HSV1 and HSV2 can cause general herpes, HSV2 being the more common cause, um, but in the 2000s, there have been more and more cases of HSV1 causing it. Um, we think because of oral, um, oral sex being more common in the, in the age group of 15 to 49-year-olds. Um, and so the seroprevalence is much higher, meaning more people have HSV-1 antibodies in the population, whether or not that's from um, cold sores or from genital herpes, um, and upwards of 60 to 90 percent in older adults, and HSV-2 being less common, but more less common overall seroprevalence, 16 percent in 14 to 49-year-olds, and yeah, 35 percent by age 60. That's based on, it's, it's more common than you realize. Um, and these are numbers based on the CDC and the NHANES study, which is a national survey. Um, so primary infection is when you're mostly, most likely going to see people in the ER or in urgent care or in the community setting. And that's their first episode or their first um, after initial infection. And it's usually an incubation period of four to seven days. And a lot of times people will have, like our patient, systemic symptoms of feeling unwell, generalized malaise, low-grade fevers. And there's a spectrum of disease because sometimes people really have minimal to no symptoms, even with primary infection, um, ranging to very severe symptoms. So usually the, the primary infection has more severe symptoms compared to recurrent infections um, or re reactivation episodes. And dysuria is a common complaint because the urine can touch the urine can touch the lesions and cause a lot of discomfort in contrast to your recurrent infection where the virus that has set up shop in the nerve root ganglion travels down the nerve and then causes that localized inflammation and lesions. And there's a number of things that can trigger that, including stress, trauma, menstruation, UV light, interestingly, is one known trigger. Um, I think it's important to tell patients that recurrence is, very, is likely, and more often than not, people will have recurrences. And most of the time, 
Um, they, they're more frequent in that first year after your primary infection. And a third of patients will have frequent recurrence, and that is um, quantified as more than six episodes in a year. And often people will have some prodromal symptoms like tingling or burning or discomfort before the lesions arise. And like Chris said, you can have even some other symptoms like urinary retention and not have the lesions yet. So she said, your patient says, but none of my partners had lesions. So did, who did I get it from? How, did that, how does that work? And that's not surprising because like COVID-19, much, much of the spread of this is from asymptomatic or also called subclinical viral shedding. So most patients don't have symptoms when, or many patients don't have symptoms when they're shedding virus. And so they don't know that they're shedding and they can spread it to others that way. So this is an example. This is a small study and there's others like it that I'll show you. But the moral to this is that um, many of these patients, so they did this study where they um, looked at all these patients that had positive antibodies to, to HSV2, but no reported history of having, ever having lesions. So they got infected at some point, but never really had symptoms of a primary infection. And they had them collect their swabs from their um, vaginal area and perineal area and perianal area, and then compared um, their rates and um, frequencies of viral shedding to those of 90 patients who knew that they had a history of, of herpes and had had symptoms before. And they found that over half of the patients in that group of people who had positive antibodies but never had symptoms symptoms before had positive um, PCR from their vaginal areas, and that was um, during, 36 of them were during days where they reported no lesions, so they were basically shedding virus and had no symptoms. And then after, they followed up for several months after the study and found that eventually people, um, most of the people initially who said they had never had a lesion before ended up having lesions during reactivation periods. And of the 90, this is also an interesting thing from the study, that 90 of the patients that, that had a history of general herpes and had had lesions before, over a third of the days where they actually had positive PCR from their vaginal and perianal area, they didn't report any lesions during that. So over a third of the time, they were basically asymptomatic and shedding virus. And this just is another example. This is an older study, but a larger study of over th of 363 women with positive antibodies to HSV2 that had never had lesions before. This was at an STD clinic, so they had a higher rate of, of um, STDs in this, in this population. Almost 100 of them were shedding virus on their cultures or their PCRs, um, and 14 of them during that time were not symptomatic, and 82 were. And of the rest of the women who had positive antibodies, they were only identified as having herpes based on the fact that they had antibodies. They had never had lesions even during the study and before the study. And this is, yet again, another example um, of asymptomatic shedding where they took a group of um, immunocompetent patients who had positive antibodies, similar to the prior studies that we just talked about, and they had them self-collect swabs that they sent for PCR for 30 days to see how often were they shedding and how often were they having lesions when they were shedding. And they were um, 
HSV2 was detected in those swabs 20% of the days on patients who were symptomatic and 10% of the time in patients who were asymptomatic. So many of these patients didn't have any symptoms and, and were still shedding virus. So the point of all this, what does this tell me, is that herpes has silent spreaders too, similar to coronavirus. So the take-home point of that is that you can have herpes, not even realize you have it, and be shedding the virus. You can also have know you have a history of general herpes, not have any lesions and think, oh, I'm good to go, but still be shedding the virus. So it's an important public health issue and an important thing to counsel patients when you, di when you diagnose this. So it's kind of like coronavirus. You can be shedding it, shedding virus all over the place and not realize it. So she, the patient asks you now, how often will I be shedding this virus? And that depends on a number of things. Um, the frequency of how often you shed virus, whether or not you have lesions, is based on whether or not this is your primary or secondary infection, or whether you have um, herpes, um, HSV type 1 or type 2, and then the time since your first episode. So primary episodes or primary infections tend to shed virus for longer because um, they have the lesions for longer compared with reactivation or secondary infection. And um, HSV-1, as a cause of general herpes, um, causes less frequent shedding than HSV-2, is often milder. So, um, and then the time since your first episode also makes a, makes a difference in how frequently you shed because we think most of the reactivations occur in the first year. Um, and, you know, the further you get from your primary diagnosis, your primary infection, the less frequent you tend to shed in immunocompetent patients. Okay, and then the next question she asks you is, how often will I have lesions? And that also depends on what type of um, HSV you have, type 1 or type 2, and also host factors, specifically the, your immune system and your antibody response. So we know that on average, about a third of patients will have frequent recurrences, which is more than six per year. Um, and that, that's kind of, this study is kind of what I tell patients. This is kind of the, the, general, um, the general way that this works is like once you get diagnosed, most frequently you'll have your most frequent recurrences in that first year. And then from there, you know, your recurrences might space out a little bit. But it all depends. Some people have really minimal symptoms and some people have more severe symptoms. Um, but on, in this study, they looked at four, over 450 patients who had a primary episode of HSV, meaning they didn't have any previous evidence of infection, so all, they didn't have any previous antibodies. And they followed them for over a year to see how often they had recurrences. And 89% had at least one recurrence in that first year or first 391 days. And over a third of them had more than six recurrences, and 20% of them had more than 10 recurrences. Um, and this seemed to be that correlate with that more how severe your primary infection was, seemed to correlate with how, um, it seemed to cause more frequent recurrences after thereafter those patients had more, more frequent recurrences. So what to tell your patient when she asks you this is that Recurrences likely, it's more common than not to have recurrences. They, more, they tend to happen more often than that first year after your diagnosis. And then it also, 
a lot of this depends on your immune system and the type of HSV that you have, because HSV-1 seems to cause less frequent recurrences than HSV-2. And then in terms of treatment, um, this is treating the primary episode is what I'm going to focus on, because that's when we tend to see patients in the emergency department. And the goal of this is to decrease the number of days that they have symptoms and the severity of their symptoms because it's uncomfortable, it's painful, and it causes a lot of discomfort with urination and things like that. So it's important to tell the patient that our goal of treating this primary episode is not to make the virus go away because it will never go away. You have this for life. This is a diagnosis that you, you never, it never, it's not it's not, you don't eradicate the virus by treating. You treat basically just to make the symptoms be less severe and for less um, period of time. And so the, the gist of this is that acyclovir and valacyclovir and famcyclovir are all equivalent in terms of how effective they are at reducing the duration and severity of symptoms. The only exception to that, the, the only way that they're different is that val Valtrex or valacyclovir is much more expensive than acyclovir. Famcyclovir is also pretty expensive. It's not one we normally pick um, because valacyclovir is twice a day and acyclovir is five times a day, but acyclovir is much less expensive than valacyclovir. So if their insurance covers it, Valtrex is probably the one you want to pick because it's, um, it's just easier to take something twice a day compared with five times a day. I don't think I could think to do anything five times a day and then the duration is about seven to 10 days, but you can extend that if they're still having lesions. And then they, as an outpatient, I tell them that they'll have to follow up with their primary doctor to talk about suppressive therapy or episodic therapy, which is a way for them to help decrease the number or frequency of, re frequency of recurrences um, and maybe help decrease the amount or frequency that they shed virus. Um, and that um, suppressive therapy is, a is basically taking Valtrex daily or acyclovir daily. Um, and without any suppressive therapy, on average, people will have immunocompetent people will have recurrences um, about four times per year with HSV2 and on average one per year with HSV1. So a lot of this depends on if the patient wants to take a medic daily medication and if they're having frequent recurrences. Because if they're not having frequent recurrences and they don't want to have to remember to take up daily medication, then suppressive therapy is probably not something they're going to want to do. Um, but it may also reduce their risk of transmission if it's helping um, decrease the number of recurrences and potentially decrease the amount of shedding virus. But it doesn't eradicate that completely, and that's important for them to know, too. And then episodic therapy is treating when you start to develop symptoms. So um, as soon as people start to feel uh, tingling or burning or feeling like they're going to have an outbreak, um, treating with a high dose of um, either famcyclovir, acyclovir, and or, or valacyclovir. And um, there's multiple studies looking at this, like just a one-day high dose, twice uh, one, one full day of high-dose famcyclovir, which is one gram twice a day, or acyclovir for two days, or Valtrex for three days. All of them are equivalent, and it's really just based on price. And then just, these are things just to know about. They're rare, but you can get complications of 
herpes infections, including CNS involvement, so meningitis, encephalitis, and transverse myelitis. Those in immunocompetent patients tend to be more caused by HSV-1 because of the proximity to the brain. But in uh, immunosuppressed patients, HSV-2 can cause CNS involvement, um, more likely from disseminated um, HSV, but it's something to know about. I think I've had two patients um, with HSV encephalitis, and it's bad. It's high mortality. So that's a important complication that even in my short few years being out of residency, um, I've seen, um, and it's something just to to know about. And then s the other thing that's rare but can happen is you can get sacral nerve involvement, where the sacral nerve um, gets, uh, it can lead to urinary retention and um, numbness around the um, sacral nerve root um, innervation. Uh, so it's rare, but if someone comes in with true urinary retention from this, it may not it may not just be from the pain of urinating, it may be from actual dysfunction of the, the sacral nerve causing inability to, to urinate. And then other rare things are end organ disease like hepatitis, pneumonitis, and disseminated HSV, all less common in immunocompetent patients, but more common in patients who, um, who are immunosuppressed, like you have HIV and things like that. And then this is what we were just talking about with the sacral nerve involvement. It's called sacral radiculitis, which can lead to acute urinary retention, loss of sacral sensation, and requires um, catheterization and IV antivirals usually. And then there's also this phenomenon called Ellsberg syndrome. I don't know if anybody's heard of this. Andy probably has because he knows all this rare stuff. But he, it's um, when basically it's a cauda equina type syndrome where the nerve uh, where the the herpes virus affects the um, lower spinal cord and can cause myelitis, and you can get lower extremity weakness, um, urinary retention, and constipation, and it's secondary to HSV infection. It's extremely rare, but I think it's interesting. So how do you treat the dysuria? Because a lot of the treatment of primary infection is also going to be focused on treatment of the symptoms that are causing them dis, um, discomfort. And there's a few options, one of which being topical lidocaine, just uh, for a short period of time. The other thing that you can tell patients is if they're having a lot of discomfort with urination is they can basically sit in a bath to pee. Um, it's what I tell my kids to do when they have bad diaper rash. It's like the same thing um, because it hurts less if you are already sitting in, in warm water to pee. Um, and so if they're having a lot of discomfort, that's one option. If they have a bath, they, they can sit in. And then oral analgesics off, obviously. And then a lot of times you're going to get this question from patients, how can I prevent my future partner from getting this? So, uh, you know, aside from the obvious things, which are abstinence, which is 100% effective, but people are probably not going to do, um, and condoms, which are not 100% effective because you can still have lesions outside of the area where the condom um, is located that you can spread by direct contact. The other thing is suppressive therapy might decrease viral shedding, although it doesn't eliminate it completely, um, but it might help with decreasing the um, transmission of the virus, but it's not 100%. Okay, and then lastly, a, few, a couple special cases. One being pregnancy, um, and 
I think it's just important for you to be able to counsel a patient if they say, well, what about when I get pregnant or if I'm pregnant, how will this affect my baby? Because we know that transmission from mom to baby can occur during delivery. And so ACOG recommends suppressive therapy at 36 weeks until labor to help decrease the chance of having viral shedding. But it doesn't completely eliminate the possibility of, of asymptomatic viral shedding. And so that's important to tell patients um, if ACOG recommends if you have active lesions or prodromal symptoms at the onset of labor, then um, it's recommended to offer C-section to patients. And if they've already been in labor for more than six hours, they still offer C-section, but it's unclear if there's any benefit to that because they've been ruptured for long enough that it may already have, um, have been spread to the baby. And then HIV is an important case because um, they're immunosuppressed and therefore they'll have more frequent and severe symptoms similar to um, any, any other immunosuppressed patient. But the other thing that's interesting is that if they have herpes and they have HIV, after they initiate their antiretrovirals, they can have a worsening of their symptoms because of the immune reconstitution syndrome where they get um, a reconstitution of their blood cell, white blood cells and can get more severe inflammation and um, symptoms when you start your antiretrovirals. And the other thing that's important about HIV patients, um, I didn't write this here, but they can um, be more at risk of, of acquiring herpes and also um, they can have drug resistant herpes um, also, so have really resistant symptoms and that doesn't respond well to our typical antivirals. So in a nutshell, asymptomatic viral shedding is common. You should tell patients to expect recurrences, although frequency varies and some people really have minimal symptoms throughout, um, throughout the course of their life. There are treatment options for reducing duration and severity, but patients should know that that doesn't eradicate the virus completely. And then there are those rare serious complications that you can get, and pregnancy and HIV are special cases. We're going to shift gears now and talk about other vaginal lesions that hurt. This, we don't have to have somebody go through this one, but um, so this is an 18-year-old female who says, I have something down there and it hurts. And she's otherwise a healthy female. She has really no medical problems. You ask her a sexual history also, and she says she's never been sexually active before, and you believe her, um, kind of. You still get a year in pregnancy. <laughs> And um, she, on exam, has these lesions, which are these deep ulcerate or uncomfortable, painful, deep ulcerations in her, on her both labia majora and minora, but mostly on the on the um, labia minora, and they're bilateral. You can't tell from this picture, but they're bilateral. Does anybody know what this is or what it could be? Yeah, there. These are um, acute genital ulcerations, yeah, also lip called lipshut ulcers. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but they're also called non-sexually acquired genital ulcerations, and they're common in young women in like 20s, in your 20s and teens, and and even sometimes um, pu pubertal females. So, uh, and they're not sexually transmitted. They're basically ulcerations that can happen on. Um, they're basically like really bad cold sores of the vaginal mucosa. 
And um, there are several reasons people can get them, but um, often they're in the setting of another viral illness. So mono or EBV is one of the most common reasons, um, but it can be from a number of other infectious things like influenza, mumps, salmonella, group A strep, mycoplasma, Lyme, and then most of the time you never figure out what the viral illness is that caused it, but um, there's other, you know, like paramyxovirus and other URI kind of viruses that can cause it. Um, and they usually heal over like two to four weeks. And so it's something that's extremely painful though. And so people will come in and be like, what is this? And it hurts really bad. And you can reassure them that it's most likely from a viral process, especially if they've, this is the first time they've ever had it. And um, most of the time they're, they go away and they get better and they never recur. You know, you should probably swab this for HSV just because it's a vaginal ulcer. But um, if they have this punched out look like these do, and they're sometimes they'll even have like a black scar over them, then uh, you should be thinking about these acute genital ulcerations. This is often what they are. And um, they will get better with time. And you basically just treat the, their symptoms of pain. Um, but also important is if they get them again or they recur, they're considered complex vaginal ulcerations, and there's other causes for that that can cause those, and that's things like inflama inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, um, and facets is another thing that can cause both oral and vaginal uh, sores, but the thing about facets is almost all have oral sores in addition to vaginal sores. Facets doesn't usually cause just vaginal sores. And then HIV and other and certain medications can also cause it if they are recurrent, happening recurrently. And those are patients that if they've had them before, I usually would say you should probably follow up with an OBGYN. There are options for treatment. So the management of these in general, I would probably test for mono, especially if they have other symptoms, just because it can give you a cause as to why. It may not change your management in the ED, but it can give the, um, the follow-up providers an idea of what could be causing it. And then if you're concerned for HSV, if they're sexually active, um, definitely swab for that. And then basically the rest of this is just treatment of the pain of these because they're really, really, really painful. And then that can be anything from, you know, oral analgesics. And then some people recommend oral steroids, like an oral prednisone um, burst or uh, and then top potent topical steroids also are a treatment option but a lot of times I'm hesitant to do those on an area like this and I would have that um, be somebody who would probably get that from a an outpatient provider like somebody who specializes in this because I'm, I'm not somebody who usually puts steroids on areas where like this <laughs> unless I'm told to by a specialist and then reassure them and provide in them with what's expected, which is mostly they'll heal over two to four weeks and then refer if they're recurrent. That's all for the Down ECM podcast for now. If you like what you hear, please pop over to iTunes, throw us some stars, give us a review. It really, really helps us. Also, we would love to hear your ideas about how we can make the podcast better any topics you like to cover, anything that you think would help your listening experience. You can check out more of what we have to offer at our blog, downeastem.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at downeastem. Until next time.